following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Hey everyone, kia ora koutou. it's great to see you. Um, thanks for welcoming me back again. This is a, an annual sojourn I, I, I really enjoy making. And uh, as you would have seen in the video there, um, Kerry is a theological college uh, serving churches right across New Zealand, not just Baptist churches. Um, and, uh, and, we, and we train pastoral leaders, definitely, um, but along with that, many other people as well. So you know, if you know of anyone who's approaching the end of their schooling career and they don't know what they want to do with the rest of their life, what might God be calling them into? We'd love to to, to talk with them, um, with that intermission program, but equally, anyone that wants to study theology, they want to grasp the gospel more fully, they want to be formed as a follower of Jesus, to be light in the world, wherever God's called them, you know, we're, we're all about that. Uh, we love Jesus, we love the Bible, we love the gospel and the church and mission, and any way in which we can equip people to be more faithful followers of Jesus in this world today. Um, we're, we're focused on doing that. So, um, uh, and as part of, of, as part of uh, our, our ministry as a, as a college, we, we love to be very church-facing and uh, in conversation with churches around New Zealand. And, um, and so I love coming here and visiting you and opening God's Word. So let's, let's do that. If you've got a Bible, would you turn to Exodus 19, Exodus chapter 19? This is a, a great little passage. Does anyone, I don't know if you, you have a favorite, a favorite movie, sort of a film that is you know, right at the top of your list. I've got a favorite film, I guess. Well, certainly one of my favorites would be The King's Speech. Anyone seen The King's Speech? You know the story about a reluctant prince who, who ends up ultimately, well, a, a stuttering prince who becomes a, a very reluctant king when his older brother abdicates the throne in England. Um, it's, a, it's a remarkable story, and for me, what I find particularly poignant about that story is not so much uh, Prince Albert's struggle to speak, if you've seen the film, that's the main thread in the narrative. For me, the most poignant element is his older brother's decision to abdicate the throne. When Edwin, Edward abdicates the throne, it's, um, I find that incredibly poignant to think about it, because apparently when he was a young, young man, he was taught by his father, King George V. He, a lot of his schooling, his tuition, happened at the hands of his father, the King of England. And, Ed, and George V would take young Edward through the halls of the, the castle at Windsor there and would show him all the treasures of the palace and would say to him, never forget who you are. Never forget who you are. If you, son, are to grow up to become all that you're meant to be, if you're to fulfill your calling... Remember who you are. Can I ask you this morning, who are you? What's your calling? What gives your life meaning? I, I sincerely believe that many of the struggles that we have as followers of Jesus today in Aotearoa, New Zealand, many of the struggles that we have as churches, as faith communities, can be traced to a kind of theological amnesia the failure to remember who we are, what it, what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be the church. So could we together uh, this morning 
trace the outlines of a theology of church. What does it mean to be the people of God today? And let's do that by looking at, at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, and we'll, we'll read from verse 1. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from that mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole world is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So this is a pivotal passage in the history of the world. This is a pivotal moment in the history of, of the world. Here, God at this mountain in, at, in Sinai is, is entering into a formal covenant with the Israelites. They are becoming here his special people. And in this particular text, God explains to them what's going on. He says, this is how you are to make sense of all of this. This is who you are becoming. This is what you're to do for me in this world. It's, it's a significant passage in the, in, the, in the narrative of Scripture. And God, God helps his people understand who they are and why they're here by pointing, as Chris Wright, the Old Testament scholar, says, in three directions. First of all, God points back to the past and then to the future and then ultimately to the present. Let's trace this, this movement of ideas here. First of all, he points to the past. He says in verse 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Well, they certainly had. Just three months before, the people of Israel, the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt, being whipped and beaten and killed. They were an oppressed ethnic minority experiencing state-sponsored genocide. They knew what it was like to, to experience suffering and, and marginalization, but God came to their rescue. He defeated the most powerful army of the day, the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. He de demolished the superpower of that period, and he... He rescued his people. And God says, somewhat like an eagle swooping down to rescue its falling chicks on its wings, as eagles do, God reached down and rescued his people from slavery in Egypt and ultimately from the, the threat of genocide. He came to their help. He saved them. Now, in the very next chapter, if you know, if you, if you know the, the, the flow of ideas in, in the book of Exodus, the very next chapter, God is going to give to the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. And then in the chapters that follow, a, a whole series of covenant laws. But before God does that, before God says to them, this is what I want you to do, first of all, he says to them, this is what I've already done. Look back 
and remember how I redeemed you. I rescued you. I've brought you to myself. You're mine. You are my special people. That's who you are. It's, I think this is really interesting. It's, let's just pause on this because it seems so trite and obvious, but notice that God doesn't say to his people here, if you obey my laws that I'm about to give you, then you will be my special people. Then I will save you from the Egyptians and bring you to myself. He doesn't say that at all. No, he says, I've already saved you. You're already my special people. So as, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, the grace of God precedes the law of God. And it always does. The grace of God always precedes the law of God. The very shape of the book of Exodus as a whole, when you think about it, captures that, expresses that. There are nine, 19 chapters, effectively, of grace, the story of God's gracious acts on behalf of his people before there's one chapter of law. Our obedience to God is only ever a response to God's grace. Our obedience to God is only ever a response to God's grace. And it's so easy to forget that. It's so easy to slip into a transactional kind of faith where we think, if, if I do X, then God will do Y. Do you know what I mean? I've experienced this often in my life. I remember as a young kid growing up in a, in a church not unlike this one, and I used to hear people speaking about you know, this, this wonderful Savior that we had, Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, and and preachers would say things like this, if you confess your sins, if you turn from this, this way of life that you have been living, if you repent from that, if you will pray the sinner's prayer and invite Jesus into your heart was how it was put, if you will do all these things, then God will forgive you. Right? That's heresy. That's a lie. We're already forgiven. Look back at the cross, at the greatest exodus the world has ever seen. And Paul says that, that there, God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. Or another way of putting it, again, the Apostle Paul, he says there, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I, um, I was reading this week a story about Christina, a young lady who grew up in the town, uh, a town just outside of Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. And as a, young, as a young girl, she had this great desire to go and, and, and experience the, the famous party atmosphere of Rio and the bright lights. She just wanted to go and experience the city. And her mum used to say to her, Christina, uh, unemployment is rife in Rio. Things aren't, you know, as they may, they may seem to you on the TV screen. It's pretty much brothels and strip joints that are able to employ young, young women. You, you don't want to go there. But Christina didn't listen to her mum. One day, she secretly packed up her stuff and she took off, went into Rio. Um, her mum, terrified of what might happen to her daughter, set off after her and searched that you know, massive city 
scoured the streets looking for her daughter, but in vain, couldn't find her. Eventually, fearing the worst, Christina's mum, and it's a true story, she visited some of the, the most hideous centres of prostitution and, uh, and, you know, and brokenness that she could find in that city, thinking that maybe Christina might end up in one of these places. And in each one of these, these brothels or strip joints, she would stick a photo of herself against the wall and write on the back of the photo a message to her daughter. And then she went home, not having found her daughter, she, she returned devastated. Well, Christina did end up working in one of these brothels. And one day she stumbled down the stairwell in the brothel and looked up at the wall and saw a photo of her mum. And she went to the wall and she took the photo down, unpinned it, and, and saw on the back a handwritten message from her mum to her. And do you know what it said? It said simply, whatever you've done, whatever you've become, please just come home. We are forgiven before we come home. We're forgiven before we repent. We don't have to do anything to, to somehow secure God's favor. We already have it. The grace of God always precedes the law of God. Our response, our obedience to God is, is only ever an afterthought, a response to his, his grace. So that's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, years, um, years ago, the, the great German theologian, a, a month before he was executed by the Nazis, was able to write down in his journal these words, who am I? Who am I? Am I, am I what people say about me? Am I what my heart says about me? Who am I? I know, O oh God, that whoever I am, I'm yours. I'm yours. So in this text, the first thing that God says to his people, having gathered them to, them to himself, is to say, look back, look to the past, remember what I've done for you. I've redeemed you. In the Exodus, I, I, I saved you. I brought you to myself. You are mine. You are my special possession, my special people. That's who you are. But then having done that, having pointed backwards, God in this passage points forwards to the future. And he, and he says, this is why you are here. Look at verse 5. God promises now, if you obey me fully and you keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Now, the word treasured possession, or the word that's translated treasured possession there, is a, is a word that, that means basically, um, well, it's often used to refer to a king's personal treasure. In the ancient world, in, in those days, a king technically owned everything in his kingdom. He would own you know, the, the everything. So everything was, was potentially at his disposal. But kings would typically have a personal treasure, something that they particularly delighted in and which was, was really at their exclusive disposal. And by using that image or that metaphor to describe the people of Israel, God is effectively pointing beyond the people of Israel. He's saying to them, yes, you are my special people, but you're not my only people. 
And if you read on in verse five, he says, the whole earth belongs to me. I want the whole earth, the whole world to know who I am, to to come under my good rule. And it's in that sense that the people of Israel are special. They have been chosen to be the means by which the whole earth might come to know God and come under his reign. And that becomes really clear in verse 6, when God describes Israel as a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. What, what, what's a priest? What was the role of a priest in ancient Israel back then? A priest would typically take the law of God and teach it, take the words of God and teach them to the people. And then they would take the offerings, the sacrifice, the worship of the people and and present it back to God. So they would bring God and people together. And so here God is saying through this passage to his people, what your priests are for you, I want you collectively to be for the world. Through you, I am drawing the world back to myself. And when you think about the whole story of Scripture, it's fundamentally that story, the story of a missionary God who is absolutely committed to recovering and restoring all of creation through a chosen people. Israel initially, we see it here in Exodus 19, but but ultimately now, those who have been grafted into Israel, the, the church of Jesus Christ, us. When you think about it, That is a story that that gives meaning and purpose to our lives. And yet, I think if we're honest, it's often a story we forget. It's so easy to get distracted and think, the details of my little life end up absorbing my attention to such a degree that I I very really think about this, this mission of God in which I get to play with my brothers and sisters in Christ, such a crucial role it's so easy to get absorbed by, you know, the studies and careers and families and finances and batches and boats, batches down in Pawanui or whatever it might be. And, 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 it, and it's so easy, not just to get distracted, but to get discouraged, to end up feeling sometimes, if we're honest, in our most honest moments when you're lying in bed looking up at a dark ceiling at night and you're thinking to yourself, is God really at work through me? Could God really work through me to draw others to himself and to bring renewal and restoration to this world? Do I see that happening? Do do any of you ever feel like that? Or is it just me? Uh, Let me tell, if if any of you do sometimes feel like that, let me tell you a story about an 83-year-old woman who was... um, She struggled from bad health, and she was shut into her house. She couldn't get out. And, but she decided she did want to participate in God's mission in this world. And she wrote to Amnesty International one day. And she said to them, look, is there anything that I can do? I'm, in, I'm, I'm shut into my house. I can't get out, but I'd, I'd like to help. And they said, you know what you could do? You could write to, to the prison authorities in Indonesia and try and secure the release of a political prisoner there. We're concerned about him. We're assigning that person to you. And so this 83-year-old woman, from her, from her bedroom, she wrote letter after letter to the prison authorities in Indonesia, the prison where this man was last known to be uh, 
incarcerated. She wrote to the government of Indonesia. And in the process, she sent many, many, many epistles, lots of letters, and didn't receive a single reply for months. Until eventually one day she got a letter back. It was a letter from the prisoner. And do you know what the letter said? It said this. They kept seeing and hearing my name. I was, I was, I was lost. I was nothing to them. They had locked me away for years with no cause. But you wouldn't let them forget. Thank God for you, my woman. You kept my name alive. And when they finally released me, they said my file was two inches thick with correspondence. Most of it was from you. They said the file was too much trouble for one prisoner. I owe you my life. Just because we don't see God at work through us, it doesn't mean he isn't at work. He says in this text that he has chosen his people to be his special people through whom he is going to draw the world back to himself. It's a promise as much as a command. But how does he do that? How do we fulfill our calling? Well, let's move on. One more step in this, in this logic here. He's pointed back to the past. He points forward to the future. Um, he says, this is what you're here for. But then... In addition, God points to the present here. In verse 6, God says to the Israelites, If you obey me fully and you keep my commands, you keep my covenant, then, verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation. Holy. What does it mean to be holy? If, if something is holy, it's set apart, right? It's... It's different. It's distinctive. My hanky is holy in the sense that I, I use it to wipe my nose and I don't use it for anything else, right? There's a sense in which things can be holy. People can be holy. And here, in this passage, where, where God says to the people of Israel, you will be for me if you obey my covenant, a holy nation. He's saying to them, I want you as as a nation, to be distinct from the other nations. I want you to be a distinctive, a different kind of community. How? By the way you live. So here is a series of commandments, a radical ethical code that will shape the way you live as a people. And when you look at that code, I don't know when the last, you know, the last time it was that you, you read through Leviticus for your quiet time, but it is remarkable Deuteronomy, Leviticus, what, what it lays down for the people of Israel to, to do and to be as a community. So, for example, amongst other things, that law says that the people of Israel are to welcome. They are to be known for the way they hospitably welcome foreigners into their midst. And, and, and God says through that law that they are to be a, a people who show particular concern for widows and for orphans, foreigners, widows, orphans, the three people most vulnerable in that particular society. And then he says, I want you to stand with the poor. I want you to, 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 to support the marginalized. I want you to defend those who are oppressed. If you will do these things, then 
you will embody as a community my, my nature, my character, and you will show the world what I'm like. It will be attractive. You'll be distinctive, and that will attract people to me. Now, that's always been the way it, it works. When you think about it, right through history, how did the early church grow? And the early church grew, I mean, exponentially. It largely grew because, for some reason, they were led by the Spirit of God to live like this. So they set up food programs throughout the Mediterranean basin where, where food programs didn't exist. They set up orphanages where there were no such things as orphanages. They set up hospitals, the first hospitals the world had ever seen. And it had an extraordinary impact on those who were watching. So much of an impact, actually, that the Roman emperor Julian, Julian the Apostate, he wrote to one of his governors saying, I don't know, I don't know what to do about this, but it's causing me great concern. I fear that my entire empire is going to be overtaken by this group of Christians through what he called the stealth of good works. This, this, these jolly good works that they're doing, it's, over, it's, it's single-handedly ripping, ripping the empire out from my fingers. I w I've been reading recently about Tim Winton, the, the Australian author, novelist, um, one of you know, the most acclaimed authors to have come out of Australia in, in the last few decades. He talks about how when he was a young boy in the mid-1960s, something incredible happened to his family. His dad, who was a police officer, was knocked off his bike by a drunk driver. And it was a terrible accident. He ended up in hospital for, for, for a long time. He was in intensive care, in a coma for days. Eventually, he was released to his family. And Tim says he was just a shadow of himself. He was this broken man. He was barely recognizable. They said, here's your dad. And I went, what? Mr. Winton was such a big man that... His wife had difficulty bathing him each day, basically caring for him. Tim couldn't do much. He was just a five-year-old. But news of the family's predicament seeped out into the community. And then one day, there was a knock on the door. Mrs. Winton answered it. And it was a man, a stranger. No one in the family knew him. And he said, yeah, g'day. My name's Len. I hear your hubby's a bit crook. Is there anything I can do to help? Len Thomas was a member of the local church, and he had turned up seeing if there was anything he could do to help. And Winton says that, having turned up for no reason, this man, day after day after day, would, would make his, uh, his visit to the family, would lift up Mr. Winton from his bed, carry him to the bath, and would bathe him. Every day. Something that Winton says in mid-1960s Perth wasn't the sort of thing that you saw every day. He said that strangely sacrificial act, his words, that strangely sacrificial act had a transformative influence, impact on him and his family. Through that act, the entire Winton family ultimately came to faith in Jesus. I wonder, if we were to take seriously our call to be the people of God, what strangely sacrificial acts, what, what simple acts of generosity and compassion might we do which could possibly arouse the curiosity of our neighbors?
of those in our larger communities. I mean, would it be mowing the lawn for your neighbor who persistently refuses to mow you know, their boom because they think it will happen miraculously somehow? That's, that's the challenge confronting me at the moment. Maybe, maybe it, could be, it could be visiting the elderly lady across the road and, and, and making a point of doing that at least once a fortnight. Maybe it could be taking that foster child into your family. You've been thinking about it. And you, you, you really need to do it. Maybe it could, it could be entering into a covenant with the members of, of a local, a small group here, a life group, part of this church. They're in your community, scattered as, 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 a, as a Christian presence around your neighborhood, but, but meeting with them regularly and sharing your life with them deeply would itself be, be a, a significant witness to those who are watching, those that know you. What is it? I reckon many of the struggles that we experience as a church in the West today, and certainly in Aotearoa, they can be traced to the fact that we have absorbed the, the, the values of our culture in our pursuit of wealth, our pursuit of status, our pursuit of, of pleasure and comfort. We're not that different from our neighbors. But when the church does embody God's character in the way it lives as a community, it's a very different story. History testifies to it. And so too does Scripture. Let me finish with, um, with a verse that, that the Apostle Paul uses, sorry, Peter, Apostle Peter uses, when he describes the people of God in the New Testament those that have put their faith in the Messiah of Israel, Jesus Christ. And this is what he says. You are a chosen people. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. He's chosen you that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And one of the ways in which we declare his praises, one of the ways in which we embody God's character in this world, one of the ways in which we serve as a holy nation, a royal priesthood, is by strangely sacrificial acts. Simple acts of generosity and compassion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the scriptures, your word through which you speak to us again and again and again. And we thank you for this passage in which you outline what it means to be your people. Thank you that you have redeemed us in Jesus. That before any of us could do anything by way of obedience, you first rescued us. You've chosen us. You've forgiven us. 
and we celebrate that in communion. We remember that every time we, we share in this covenant meal together. And we thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us and, and, and made us to be a people through whom you are drawing the world back to yourself, restoring and renewing all of creation. And sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes we do doubt whether you could use us in the way that you promised to. But Lord, we thank you that you are at work. And as we give ourselves in response to your grace to live in ways that are strangely sacrificial and loving, caring for those who are, who are in need around us, that through that you do draw people to yourself. You do signal who you are. Lord, give us the grace to see and to, to recognize those ways in which you are inviting us to embody your love as your people today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.